This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Wendy Weaver, Executive Director of Montana Freshwater Partners, an organization dedicated to restoring, enhancing, and preserving Montana's freshwater ecosystems. We're seeing these more extreme, intense weather events happening, and that is really taking a toll on our our rivers and our wetlands and our, our streams. This team of five women based in Livingston includes a broad array of skills and capabilities, all focused on protecting Montana's aquatic resources. Wendy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in Missoula. I was born in Helena and moved to Missoula when I was in kindergarten. So grew up on the west side of town there. And uh, my parents, my dad was a highway engineer for the Department of Transportation. And my mom was a teacher and then ended up staying home to raise kids and help in other various ways. Indeed. So how did you get interested in water? We grew up outside. So from when we were really little, we spent all of our time outside uh, recreating on rivers and the backcountry and up in the mountains, wilderness. And it was a pretty big part of our lives. I think my first trip on the Smith River, I was five years old and I don't was obviously not permitted back in the day, but it was also a place that people really didn't explore. So I think that was my my first experience. And we spent a lot of time on rivers, so had a very deep connection to our our rivers and lakes in Montana. And at what stage did you decide you wanted to make rivers and water um, your career? My dad never talked about engineering. I don't think he wanted us, any of us, to go into engineering. So I promptly went into engineering and I wanted, I knew I wanted to do some type of water resources. And back then they really didn't have that type of program at at the university. The closest thing they had was agricultural engineering, which is like a bioresource program, a lot of irrigation, that sort of thing. So I went into that program because it was the closest thing to water resources and graduated with that program. Back in that day, I guess mid to late 90s, there really wasn't a field of water restoration, river restoration, conservation. It really, we weren't looking at our river systems in a way to work with Mother Nature. It was more of a how do we control them? Okay. So given that, describe Montana Freshwater Partners. What is the organization all about and why do you exist? We were formed in 2011 and there are a number of people, very active conservation folks in Montana, and they had done a bunch of research and had determined Montana was losing a significant amount of our wetland and stream function in the state because of a lack of mitigation options. 
And so we were formed as the state's first in lieu fee compensatory mitigation program. Ooh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to define that term <laughs> yes. for us. That sounded important, but I don't understand what it is. It's confusing. So through the Clean Water Act, the US Army Corps has the two thousand and eight federal mitigation rule. And what that says is whenever there is impacts to wetlands or streams within a certain threshold the impactor must mitigate for those impacts. Okay. So it's in line with a no net loss of wetland and stream functions. So let's say the railroad is doing a project and they're going to impact two acres of wetlands. They essentially have to mitigate for that impact so there's no loss of function. And what are we talking about as far as like an impact and a loss of function? Are we talking about pollutants or sediment or like what 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 kind of does that look and feel like for somebody not familiar with that vocabulary? Sure. So an example would be a a road, a roadway is, is being built and it's being either built over or adjacent to wetlands. Okay. So wetlands are actually being impacted and removed from the landscape. And it's technically any, if there's any kind of fill in those wetlands, it's an impact. So there's very strict requirements that the Army Corps has on what that is involved with that. And then what would be like a mitigation tactic to, you know, help if a road's going in, it's going to displace some wetlands. What is a typical mitigation? So there's different options the developer or permittee can choose, and we're an option for that. So they come to us and they can buy the equivalent of the wetland or stream credits that they're impacting, we take that money and we identify a project to essentially restore that function. So we might work with a landowner who has some wetlands that have been dewatered over time. They may have been overgrazed, the vegetation removed, some type of of human impact to those wetlands. And so we take that money and we restore that function back into that landscape so that ideally they're functioning in their natural, original natural state. And I guess give us kind of the current state of play with Montana's freshwater resources. Like how are we doing overall as, as a state and what are the biggest threats to freshwater in Montana at the moment? Historically, Montana you know, in the the mid-70s, our water resources were under pretty significant threat mm-hmm. from dam construction to dewatering and, and other types of impacts. And I would say the conservation movement has been pretty significant in, in addressing a lot of those concerns. And that said, we're also in the face of Probably the most significant climate change impacts that we've seen in the last decade. And with that is coming significant extended drought. And as we saw last summer, impacts from floods. So we're seeing these more extreme, intense weather events happening. And that is is really taking a toll on our, our rivers and our wetlands and our, our streams. So... Yeah, it seems like climate change is kind of making our rivers warmer and drier and lower flows, but at the same time we're getting these 
large precipitation events like we saw last year that are pressuring the the water systems in different ways. It's These forces seem like they're disrupting whatever equilibrium existed before. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Last year, we were in a significant drought. Well, we've been in extended drought for almost seven years, but mm-hmm. Park County had, had been experiencing droughts, pretty severe drought through the winter for four months. And then we had this atmospheric river hit and that brought a large amount of rain that we hadn't expected. So it's it's those types of events that I think are going to continue to happen more frequently and we're not really prepared to handle. Yeah, I mean, let's focus on the Yellowstone floods for a moment. What did you and your colleagues learn about the resiliency of the river and our water systems more broadly um, through the experience of that event? We've learned a lot. I don't know if we have built resiliency into our system over time. You know, there was a lot learned in the 96, 97 floods that happened on the Yellowstone. And pretty significant studies and efforts came out of those floods to improve resiliency on the river. And I guess I would say, for the most part, those really weren't completed or implemented. Okay. And so now we're here almost... 30 years later in a very similar situation, much more catastrophic flood. And looking back, what have we learned? And so it's it's really interesting, right? Where a lot of this work has been done, we just haven't had the will or the means to implement what we know we should be doing. So what are some of those things? Like what you say we, we have an idea of, of some of the things we know we need to do and we're not doing them. What What are those things that we need to be doing? The flood was catastrophic in many ways because it impacted people and people's homes and businesses along the river. And so when you you don't have infrastructure, you don't have homes and buildings along the river when a flood happens like this, it's nature doing her work. And it's only when you have, you know, those things in the way of it that it creates the significant damage. So You know, I think the things that we're focusing on is there's been extensive channel migration zone mapping that's been done on the entire Yellowstone River. So the river's been mapped. We know where the avulsion zones are. We know where the high erosion areas are. We know where the river's going to go and move when when it floods. And so being able to look at those tools that exist and getting our decision makers, whether it's local, city, county, state, to look at that and use that when making decisions on where development and infrastructure should go is really important. And so the idea there is that a river will naturally migrate over the course of its life, and we need to have a land use policy and system that allows that migration as naturally as possible. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, I don't know if I would say, yeah, ideally we would have a land use policy that is not allowing development to happen in the floodplain and in that 100-year channel migration zone. That is my opinion. And I feel pretty strongly that that would be a great proactive way to go to build more resiliency into the system Politically, I don't know how feasible that is. So how can we, at least from a voluntary standpoint, have those decision makers understand what that means when we do have development and infrastructure in those areas 
and how to do that in a way that's minimizing that risk and the damage that might happen when we start to see more of these types of events. Sure. So, Wendy, could you walk us through like a, a success story of where, you know, Montana Freshwater Partners was able to plug in and do some of these, this mitigation, help with keeping the, the ecosystem as intact as possible? And, and what would you consider success? Can you walk us through an example? I guess what I can speak to is our first and second channel migration easements that we completed almost six years ago. And that that idea and that concept really stemmed from those 96, 97 floods on the Yellowstone. Okay. When the Army Corps was sued and from a, a, a flood of permits that were going to come in and riprap or lock up the river, the Corps was sued. And so that catalyzed a 15-year study on the Yellowstone. And from that, a number of recommended practices were developed. And one of those was protecting river corridors in perpetuity. So if we could protect these areas in perpetuity, the river would always have room to roam across its floodplain and therefore minimizing impacts and damage from flood and also providing wildlife and fish habitat and just allowing the river to function in its natural way. So from that, we implemented our first channel migration easement near Sydney, Montana. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, we did our second one near Forsyth. So the lower Yellowstone and then the middle. And the idea was that we would build upon that, right? So having one in Sydney and one in Forsyth doesn't really do a lot. But if you start to string multiple CMEs together, channel migration easements together, over time, you're going to have this more expansive area that's protected. And so that was the idea. Yeah, We've had a number of challenges, one of them being funding. And a channel migration easement really is a, is a voluntary agreement. A landowner typically is tired of fighting the river. They may have put riprap in, they may have lost that riprap in a high flood, it's very expensive, they're losing land, there's a lot of stress, especially as we saw here in Park County last summer, there's a lot of stress for landowners who live next to rivers. And so the idea around this is that we could compensate them to give up their ability to essentially fight or control the river. And so if they agree to not riprap or alter that channel migration zone area on their property, they would be compensated to do that. Okay. And then it remains in protection in perpetuity. We'll be back to my conversation with Wendy Weaver after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Wendy Weaver, Executive Director of Montana Freshwater Partners. You know, how would that affect kind of the, the landowner's the experience of the land. I'm thinking an agricultural landowner might not be able to plant so close to the river or somebody 
you know, if it's more of a recreational pro- property, maybe they have to think about where they put structures and, and, and so forth. Like what, what kinds of costs and benefits come with this to, to a landowner along a river? So typically it's it's always, it's not a one size fit all. Sure. So each each easement is really catered to the landowner's needs and interests. So with the two that we did, maintaining a, a landowner's ability to continue their agricultural production is really important. So we don't limit that production. They are able to farm that property if it's in that in that area as they always have. The things that are restricted are controlling the banks, so okay. putting riprapper, hardening of any type of any any sort along the riverbanks. It would be building new roads. It could be they're not allowed to block side channels. So keeping floodplain connectivity open and those side channels open is really critical. So they're not able to plug those. And then, you know, each each one is really catered for the landowner. So they may be able to go and rip wrap right around their home, for example, if a big flood was going to come up. They're able to do that okay. to protect their structure. But they may not be able to build a new big home 20 feet off the bank of the river. Got it. Wendy, from the perspective of the river, how does the river benefit and all of the, you know, plants and fish and other aquatic uh, organisms, how, do, how, do, how does that whole system benefit from a river being allowed to flow as freely as possible? You know, when a river is able to move across its floodplain and it, when it floods in, in the spring and it gets a large volume of water and it moves across and it cuts into banks and it takes trees and vegetation with it, that whole natural process of it moving around is highly beneficial for the river. It has biomass in there that eventually provide food sources for insects and fish. That that messy structure, deadfall, that large woody debris is really important for fish wildlife habitat. Okay. The more a river is straightened and locked into place, the more it degrades and the more energy it gets. And it essentially just shoots this power and this energy downstream and builds like a snowball, builds that power and that momentum and and continues to impact those down below. So when, when a floodplain is intact and a river can move out across that floodplain, it loses some of that energy and that, that sediment can drop out and and new sediments, very good for vegetative growth. And so when it can't do that, the power just continues to cut the banks out more than it normally would if, if it could be dissipated across the floodplain. That's interesting. And it's something I had n- never kind of heard articulated that way. So if a river is kind of constrained and managed and has, you know, riprap and structured banks and whatnot – Flooding can be more catastrophic, is is what you're saying, because the, the the river's constrained. It develops more potential energy. When a flood eventually comes, it can be more devastating. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that we see that all over the place. Houston flooded in the way it did because it didn't have the wetlands. It didn't have those areas that that system used to dissipate across to move into. 
And so organizations like yours and a lot of ecologists, they use the term resilience. I don't think it's a term that is broadly understood, but what you're describing and the benefits of a free-flowing river are resilience in a way. It can absorb some of the natural, for lack of a better phrase, ebb and flow of the water than a river that's been kind of constrained by human-imposed structures. And there's a balance to that, right? So we, we do have infrastructure along our river systems. We have railroads, we have roads, we have bridges. And so it's not to say that we don't want to protect that infrastructure that's in place, because we do. But there's a balance where we can let rivers roam. We we really need to do that. So one of the biggest kind of legacies of Montana's resource extraction-based economy is, is a lot of water quality problems. As we've kind of transitioned or are transitioning to an economy that's based more on tourism in many ways, like tourism is a resource extraction industry of a sort – and some argue that it presents a whole nother set of stresses on our natural resources, maybe even more significant. How, how are you thinking about the balance between giving people access to these natural resources that they want to play and recreate in with the threats that that use, that form of use brings to the, to the resource as well? We're seeing that as a really significant issue. And I think river systems all over seeing this type of pressure. And unfortunately, Montana doesn't have a funding mechanism to manage our resource in the way we need to to handle this increased pressure. Hmm. Our hunters and our anglers are carrying a lot of the weight with their fishing and hunting licenses to manage our resources, and that is just not working. We're going to figure out or learn the hard way on how to do this in a way that we can maintain the river's natural beauty and the things that draw us all to it in a way that it's not seeing a death by a thousand cuts in this very qualitative opinion in what a in a what a good river experience or outdoor experience is. That's that's completely different to someone like me who grew up here versus someone that comes from anywhere else and experiences my experience and what I think is too much pressure is completely different from someone else's. And how do you manage a resource with these starkly different opinions on what's too much and what's a, what's a, a good experience? Yeah, it's super complicated and takes uh, good leadership and good faith collaboration. Are there any towns or or states or communities where you see this being done well, not necessarily in such a way that we want to emulate, but but who do you think is doing this as well as it can be done at the moment? You know, I think we still have a lot to learn. I think there are places that are doing it better than others. You know, I give a lot of kudos to the Flathead Rivers Alliance with their stewardship program and Clark Fork Coalition as well. I think their river stewardship program, those are great. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't know if if anyone is doing it in the way to truly protect and put the resource first. I don't know if we have the ability to set aside our personal interests and the economies that rely on the resource in such a way to put that first. 
That is my opinion. And I'm sure that's not held by many people, but I've changed my opinion just in the last three to five years based on the number of people coming and experiencing the backcountry in these places and not having the infrastructure set up to to handle it and seeing it abused in such a way that's really degrading it. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things we saw brought into sharp focus during COVID with so many you know, more folks here and limitations on other things that people could do. It's wonderful to see folks outside recreating and and enjoying the space in which we live, but um, it's not without a cost as far as, you know, the resource cannot just endure all of us wanting to get our little part of it all the time. Yeah, I would argue there is a tipping point and how to determine what that is and what are the actions to prevent that from happening I I won't claim to know what those are, and I don't know if anyone really does. And we have the ability to work together on both sides of the opinion to come up with a solution to do that. Sure. You know, Wendy, if somebody listening to this wants to kind of be a part of the process to come up with better solutions than we have now, I mean, it seems like achieving perfect is probably you know, something that could get in the way of achieving something good. But where would you advise people who want to get involved in um, protecting and enhancing our freshwater resources? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities. There are many local watershed groups almost in every every watershed in the state. And normally those watershed groups are always looking for volunteers on projects or river cleanup or stewardship in some form or fashion. And I think that's a great way to get involved. I also think, you know, financially supporting those local watershed organizations and the work that they're doing to protect and restore those river systems is very impactful and really helps out. And then also just being in touch and staying on top of any legislation or policy that may be coming up that could um, threaten our our resources as well and that's a lot but there are a lot of ways to do that you know one of the things we started to try to address this lack of funding for projects and managing this increased recreational pressure is a give back to the yellowstone campaign and there are other campaigns like this happening in the big hole up in the whitefish lake area and conversations around you know, in the Bitterroot, and how how do these local groups come up with funding to essentially tap into the tourism industry and non-residents that are coming, maybe not buying fishing hunting licenses, and having them contribute in some way and in, in protecting these places. And I think that will have a lot of impact in how we manage rivers in the future. So I think supporting those types of efforts will be helpful. Excellent. And if folks want to learn more about your organization, where would you direct them online? They can go to our website at freshwaterpartners.org and sign up for our newsletters. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and do a lot of outreach and education around different events and why rivers are important, those sorts of things. Awesome. Well, I encourage people to get involved. Wendy, it's been wonderful learning more about your work, Montana Freshwater Partners, and the important role you play in trying to 
keep our resources as safe and fresh as they can be. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I am happy to share all of this. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.